0: Welcome to the sober nation FM podcast where we're putting recovery on the map. I'm your host, Jonathan Sylvester. This show is brought to you by sobriety engine. Do you want to take your recovery to the next level? Do you want more support community and fellowship sobriety engine is an incredible community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery, you can get a ton of great tips, resources and guidance to help you succeed in recovery and in life. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. Sober Nation FM is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle all while supporting your sobriety, then you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Nation, let's hop right into today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with the author and founder of Spiritual Adrenaline, Tom Shanahan. Thanks for coming on the show, Tom. My pleasure to be here, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me. Hello to everybody out there in Server Nation. Yeah, really really glad to have you, man. And I see you doing some really incredible things with Spiritual Adrenaline. And I want to hear all about the program, how that works, and the book. But first, tell us briefly about how your addiction led you to where you are today.
1: All right. First, I just want to say to everybody out there in the Sober Nation community, I hope you're all safe and sober and taking advantage of all the virtual options that are out there to really stay sober during these really, really difficult days. Um, Again, in full, so for 96,000 families now have lost somebody across the country. I get emotional when I I think about that. So um, if anybody out there is in one of those families, I feel for you and I hope that better days are coming both for you, your family and for our country. So that being said, I'm so glad I'm sober right now. I think the only worst thing that could be happening right now in my life is to be actively using drugs and trying to find a dealer who can sell it to me and getting drunk and being a buffoon and putting myself and other people in danger. Uh, out during the pandemic, and you know, really probably coming down with COVID nineteen very quickly. Yeah. Um, so I'm really glad I just celebrated nine years on May 11th. That's um, awesome,
0: congrats! Thank
1: you, thank you, thank you, and I have seven years without cigarette smoking in September of this year. And so all that being said, um, you know what happened with me was that I, I grew up in an area where. Um, in New York City where it was common for like the cool kids to go have the keg parties and to smoke pot and those kinds of things and it was really just innocent fun and everyone in the neighborhood was part of it and I was the captain of the swim team I was on the soccer team Um, you know but on the weekends everything revolved around drinking so in college that continued and became also Uh, I was lifeguarding, so I was in great shape, but I was also partying like crazy, and then I started smoking cigarettes, and then in college, started doing uh, cocaine, and the reality is, over the years after I got out of college, I was working, I, I got right out of college, I worked at a major television network. That I went to work for the Mayor of New York at his press office, and I had a whole series of what you would call high profile or you know success jobs in law firms and things like that okay. uh, but at the same time, you know the way that I celebrated something positive happening in life or the way that um you know the I would reward myself for for winning some legal case or whatever would be to go out drinking and then also at, at the latter part of it get an eight ball of Coke, that kind of a thing. Thank and God. so my world started to get smaller and smaller, and I think, I didn't think anybody knew, but obviously a lot of people knew, and I was still practicing law. And then, uh, I won't get into all the things that happened, but sure. within, within three months, my brother was paralyzed uh, from the neck down skiing um, on March 6, 2010. My colleague, who's still my office mate today, her son was paralyzed. <laughs> Uh, in, in a snowboard accident from wow. the neck down you know, that happened first in January 2010 and then two weeks two months after my brother was paralyzed my mother was uh, diagnosed with throat cancer and had to go out of nowhere and went into like chemo and radiation and all these things and I had been in a high poli- in a political job in, in New York and I was fired uh as part of I blew the whistle on, on certain people who were doing things I shouldn't have been doing and I wound up being fired and targeted for investigation after they were asked to leave. Wow. And so all these terrible things happen together and then. Sure. To be able to cope with it, because I was covering my colleague's law practice, I was helping my brother actively with his therapy to try and get back and walking. I was taking my mom, my sister had three little kids at the time, so I was driving up to Albany. My brother lived in Maine, and then to Albany to help with the chemo and the radiation, and the way I kind of balanced everything, seemed like it was a great idea, was um, to do coke, <laughs> like yeah. to try to cope with all this stuff. Right,
2: and right. I was
1: doing a lot of coke, and then I would drink, to kind of bring it down yeah and try and meet these obligations and then eventually what um i couldn't get out of bed without you know 10 a, i remember it would be like 10 a.m i had to have a line to be able to get out of bed and then i had to drink during the day to like keep myself an even keel because i was doing so much coke just to function and you know like everybody else uh, it worked for a while then it stopped working yeah and so, when I got to rehab, I was thrilled. Um, I had tried years before to try and give up alcohol, more alcohol than drugs, and failed miserably. I went to meetings. I didn't pay attention. I thought it was um, a meeting-based program, the 12 Steps, not okay. a step-based program. Right, right. I, I said, I don't want to do step work. I'm not going to do step yeah, work. Yeah. I don't really need a sponsor. And then I got a sponsor who didn't work steps. Okay. And so what the reality is, is nothing really changed for me. I went to meetings and didn't pay attention. I usually text and then I was still hanging around at the same people, places and things. Right. Yeah, okay. and so yeah. um, it doesn't work that way. That's why they call it. It's a step based program. And so in rehab, I said, I'm going to work all 12 steps. They said, you can't do that. So I'm going to give it my best try. <laughs> so I put on a lot of weight in rehab. I tried to work all the steps to the extent possible. I started working out every day. Um, and then I, you know, I started putting on a lot of weight. I went in at 140, came out 28 days later, believe it or not, 177. Wow. And I continued to put weight on. And so in that first six months into the or the first year, really. So the reality was I felt great about staying sober. I was going sure. to two- Day, 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. and then i was you know really working with sponsor my sponsor i had a couple of sponsors but the reality was i started to realize i was smoking more cigarettes than i did when i was actually drinking and doing drugs um i was eating like i, I would go to dunkin donuts and just get a culata, a pineapple or strawberry culata, and like four donuts and that yeah. was like a meal the point is i started to understand or feel that my lifestyle wasn't consistent with what I was experiencing at the meetings, and then when I did the step work with my sponsor. And so I started to realize, although people tell me, don't worry about anything in your first year, I became concerned that my lifestyle was gonna undercut my ability to stay sober in the long run, and really, my happiness. And so I went and became a personal trainer, I got certified in sports nutrition. I found a sponsor who is a very well-known personal trainer up where I was in Portland, Maine. My brother lived there. So I moved up to help take care of him. I took a whole year off of practicing law. And I actually, I, I, I you know, it just changed everything. And as I changed the habits, the people I was around in recovery changed. In other words, like when I was, when I was chain smoking, two packs or more a day, I would hang out with the people smoking as they went, we go into the meeting. And then I would take my cigarette break mid-meeting with the same couple of the same people. And then we go to the pizzeria or the diner really late after at night. And so what and when I started to get into the more healthy lifestyle, that changed because I didn't want to be around the smoking. And I started going to morning meetings. I met people who actually went to work out either before or after a meeting. And that became my, uh, my recovery circle. Okay. And so the lifestyle choices in ways that I didn't see at the time impacted my recovery. Right, <laughs> and it, right. for me, I'm like, I knew I wasn't the first person who had experienced this, sure. but I really benefited so amazingly from the integration of the 12 steps into what I was eating in my exercise regimen. Well,
0: yeah, I was just gonna say so I and I want to ask you more about that in just a minute. But you and I have spoken before and I and I know other people can relate besides you because I can relate. And you know, one thing that I picked up on and we have a pretty similar story. I mean, you know, I was not healthy at all. I was chain smoking like crazy. Uh, I was overweight. I had never been active before, you know, very similar to your story got, you know, got into work decided that I wanted to be healthy. Um, got into personal training, you know, uh, became a nutritionist, you know, very similar. One thing that I picked up on there that you said that, you know, that I think I can relate to a lot. And I try to share with people as well um, that that feel this way is that, you know, it just felt like something was misaligned. Like I was getting, you know, I was getting connected in this program that was changing my life, you know, 12 step program that was helping me to stay sober. I was starting to you know, think differently and feel differently about things and actually consider other people and all this stuff. But, uh, it was kind of misaligned with how I felt in terms of like energy levels, what I was eating. And I think one thing that stuck out to me now given I like staying sober is the most important thing. Right. But that being said, I think one thing that struck me was, is that I saw, you know, when I got sober and I started going to meetings and stuff, it just started to feel a little off when I would see like, you know, maybe a guy would have like 25 years sober and um, you know, it'd be super overweight. You know, he's carrying around an oxygen tank, you know, cause he have, has emphysema.
2: Right, right.
0: And, and I don't mean to make light of this, but it's like, that just seemed totally, I, I was just like, you know, what's going on here? The question that I asked myself was, why did I get sober to keep, you know, living, so to speak, only to be unhealthy and not feel good? So I, so I get where you're coming from. And I guess this is where, uh, you know, everything kind of led up to, you know, writing spiritual adrenaline and and starting the program. But I want to ask, and you're touching on it a little bit. I mean, why do you think it's really important for people to uh, integrate, you know, these healthy self, self-care habits and this? Uh, you know, these routines into their recovery program?
1: Well, let, let me just say one of the things that helped me quit smoking two years after I gave up alcohol and drugs yeah. was going to nicotine anonymous meetings. I went to a meeting every Friday at the Seafarer's house, which is on off of Union Square in New York City. And I sat next to a gentleman who brought his tank of oxygen in his electric wheelchair because he could no longer walk. And wow. I'm getting emotional because he would sit right next to me every meeting and he'd be like, he would share, I, I, I want to get out of here right now and have a cigarette. And he couldn't break that habit. And the very first thing he would do after the meeting is to go upstairs and have a cigarette. And I remember seeing that. And you know, the cigarette manufacturers, they do everything they can do. 2,000 times of toxins in there yeah. to hook you. But, you know, I, I, that by going to those meetings and seeing that, it really emphasized in my mind that I've got to give it up. And so what I found as far as the cigarettes are actually relevant was, the better I ate, the less caffeine I drank, the less sugar I consumed, the less anxiety I had that I wanted to kind of, um, you know, cover up with, with the cigarettes. And so, look, we've spoken before about this, you know, and I yeah. was told a lot, I would share sometimes at meetings up in Portland, Maine, about how I was exercising and eating right. I remember being told by a guy who's a fisherman up there, those are outside issues,
2: not right, <laughs> <right. laughs> we
1: don't do that here i was like okay but you know so when i researched my book because i said this can't be so because i just felt that there had to be some linkage and i was aware that bill w had done a lot of work with niacin i was aware that dr bob had done some work on these issues and some of the old timers who disagree with the fishermen said no that that goes back in the program so i asked the world headquarters as you know for permission to uh, use their research library. I also reached out to Stepping Stones, which was the home of Bill Wilson and his wife Lois. And so I was able to access materials that go back to the founding days of the 12-step world. I mean, Dr. Silkworth was another one who was actively involved right in the early days. And so right from the beginning, and this has been lost in 12-step circles, and I'm not really sure why. I think um, I I won't speak to why I think that is. I'm not sure why I'll say that. Um, But right from the beginning, there's 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 documented evidence and i write it there's a whole chapter in my book that covers this material about where they were actually experimenting with foods sauerkraut ketchup hot dogs baking soda for example or specifically try to help to see if it helped people stay sober it's documented Bill Wilson came up with what he called his sister foods to alcohol. There's six of them. I write about it in the book. And he recommended if people are trying to stay sober, that these are the six foods that we recommend you avoid. And Dr. Silkworth was the one. I oftentimes hear, oh, I have the allergy. I have the allergy. Well, Dr. Silkworth, Dr. Duncan Silkworth actually said, it's a misnomer to call addiction an allergy. This is what he actually said. However we manifest behaviors that are similar to someone who has an allergic reaction. And so what he was also suggesting was, what are we having that reaction to? And this Mm -hmm. goes way back, 1920s and 1930s. He was at the forefront of saying they thought it had something to do with the wheat. They thought it had something to do with the barley. We talk about gluten a lot these days, right? right? And how people react. But they were onto that right from the beginning Interesting. and
2: so how that
1: got lost in the overall framework of how the step program developed i'm not really sure but the reality is it was always there and then when bill wilson he suffered from you know when i went to see it at stepping stones the actual desk where bill wilson wrote many of the really important books uh that the 12-step programs rely on today it's ringed in burn marks from the cigarettes that he would put on the sides of the desk all around oh, wow. the desk, because he was never able to quit smoking and he died of emphysema. And I remember going in early recovery and seeing that desk and those burn marks knowing that he died of emphysema and saying, I'm going to have to break the cigarette habit because it killed him. Wow! But he also, you know, so he smoked throughout his life and he was someone who suffered from depression. He wrote a lot about niacin and how it helped him. He actually did a, um, his own like impromptu kind of a test where he gave people different amounts of niacin. And there was three groups. There was about 30 people who volunteered from AA um, meetings here in New York. So he kept track to see how the, you know, vitamin B or niacin impacted them. Right. And he was so, um, he would, they saw results that indicated they that people were benefiting from taking vitamin B, taking niacin. So he wrote a pamphlet that he sent out to various doctors. And that's when the AA board said to him, you don't have a medical degree.
2: Mm.
1: You have no background. You're not a registered dietitian. So you can make, you can't be on the AA board, the same board of the organization that he co-founded, but you can't stay on our board if you're going to be doing those things. And so he stepped down from the board excuse me he didn't step down from the board he stopped doing the research so he could stay on the aa board wow. and so that's the history and i think that that was where because he had spoken about and again all the citations to the authority is in mm-hmm. my book evidence-based so every premise in there every conclusion has a citation um you know but what he wanted to do was actually to incorporate um you know how we have the traditions and, and different sure. um, into the actual traditions and the steps, potentially some changes to lifestyle. And that that stopped when they gave him the ultimatum because he made the decision it was more important to stay within the organization. But I think that that's kind of the genesis of why we find now many people will say it's an outside issue. But it's not, uh, then I'll shut up, but this is my passionate about this issue. You know, the research, again, in the book shows that uh, of people who are admitted to inpatient um, rehabilitation, between 70 to 92% are either type two diabetic or hypoglycemic, that's, that's a huge number. So what they're eating or not eating or is, is relevant to how they're gonna be treated in the inpatient setting. And th- this statistic blows my mind and it makes me so sad every time I hear it. According to the Mayo Clinic, in California, not some eccentric uh, place that no one's ever heard of, the Mayo Clinic in California, their nicotine dependence program. 52% of all people they surveyed who identify as being in addiction recovery have died of some smoking related illness, either from continuing to smoke into recovery or as a consequence of, of the prior behavior. So wow. I don't hear people talk about that much, but this is really critical information for people who want to not just get abstinent, but sober, healthy, and happy.
0: Yeah, no, that's, man, and that's, you know, I love hearing because we don't want to just hear, you know, someone's a- opinion, right? I mean, I think it's always good to hear, you know, s- something backed with, with facts and, uh, like you said, just real evidence, um, you know, from a place that has a background of of looking into and researching these things. So that's that's all really helpful stuff. And I think it's important to say, you know, that um, while, well, so, you know, someone might be listening to this and they're thinking like, OK, like big deal, you know, c- cigarettes like I, I was doing heroin, you know, and robbing people or, or whatever, you know, and, and I get that, too. You know, I think um, a lot of people kind of just suggested to me that I handle one thing, you know, one thing at a time, you know, and, and kind of take care of the most important stuff first. But you make a really interesting point and, and I think it's a good one. And it's essentially, hey, yeah, let's let's take care of that, you know, the most uh, pressing issues or substance substances first. But then at the, the end of the day, like we want you to stay here and stay sober and, and live a a healthy, a healthy life and really live the best life that you can. And I, I know that for me, like really where things just kind of didn't again, like just didn't feel aligned was where, uh, when I started going to the gym, man, I would be like chain smoking a few cigarettes before I went into the gym and then chain smoking a few cigarettes when I went out or came out. And eventually I was just like, this, this doesn't really match what, what I'm doing. And um, so, you know, I, I've, I know buddies that, that have quit smoking. I, I've got buddies that have really struggled with it and want to quit. And I know other people that are still smoking and they don't see it as, as a big deal right now. And that's, that's their thing. But I think at the end of the day, I mean, especially with the numbers you just presented, um, that it's something to be aware of, definitely from a, a smoking uh, perspective as well.
1: Well, you know, I, listen, uh, everyone has to make their own choices. What One of the things that I did in early recovery was I looked at the people I wanted to be more like okay. and, and really kind of aspire to be living the kind of lifestyle they were living. Yeah, and, sure. of and so everyone has to make their own choices. But here's what I say to that. I also want to mention the Detroit Recovery Project right now. Shout out to the Detroit Recovery Project. It's a great organization is doing an online a quit smoking program, which is, I think is oh, the very great. one that's been done in, the, in sobriety that I'm aware of. I interviewed the, one of the founders uh, and the person who's in charge of that program. So if you're looking to quit smoking, go check out the Detroit Recovery Project because uh, they have a free program that's virtual right now. But Jonathan, here's here's. You know this, and I know this. And let me just say one thing: I have my book right here. That's what it looks like. Uh, it there's over every chapter has citations to authority. And the reason I, I went through the trouble of actually reading the research and citing the research is when I was in early recovery, I read a lot of I read everything I could get on nutrients and food and the interrelationship and exercise, you know, and recovery. Many of them were books that didn't cite to the back the backup material, the credible scientific information that backed it up. And I found that some of them just said, hey, the alcohol, um, the vitamin cure to alcoholism, you know? Right, If right. it was that easy, nobody would have a problem quitting, yeah, right? Right. I wanted to put together a book that people could rely on as a resource because it's credible, because it's evidence-based. Okay. And here's what the research suggests. And listen, people can, they can take what works, and they mm-hmm. can leave the rest. Sure. But if you are smoking, you are contributing to anxiety. There is no research to date that, sh- that uh, lays out the percentage of people in addiction recovery with anxiety, but I am one of those people. I don't know if you are. I never realized until I got sober how much anxiety I get, mm-hmm. and I think if you go to meetings, if you participate in any kind of recovery forums, anxiety is a major problem for people in, in addiction. Okay.
2: Yeah.
1: Smoking makes anxiety worse. Smoking makes depression worse because as your body is 2,000 toxins in each cigarette, okay, think about that flowing through your blood. Think about that going into the capillaries in your lungs. There is absolutely no way. Look at what's happening with COVID 19. I mean, I see people out here, I live in New York City smoking cigarettes. Like, right. What is it going to take? But that tells me how addictive they are, yeah. okay? Yeah. But all these sub-illnesses that permeate addiction recovery, anxiety, depression, all of it, the sedimentary lifestyle mm-hmm. can be worsened by cigarette smoking. There's no way around it. So look, everyone has to do what makes them comfortable and what's right for them. I'm not criticizing anybody because I've been there and yeah. I know how hard it is. But I'm telling you now, if you're able to break that addiction to the nicotine and all the other toxins in those cigarettes, you're going to, not that I'm telling you, the science is going to tell you, that you're going to reduce your anxiety, you're probably going to be able to to move more, your lungs will function better, you can get out and do some more exercise, walk in a park, that's going to impact your your, uh, depression. And one more thing that's really, really important, I'm going to talk about this I hope later, when you smoke, you're killing the good bacteria that your body needs hmm. to produce enzymes and other, quote, unquote, feel-good hormones. And from most of the major organ systems in the body, and cigarette smoking makes it, they're toxic. it's toxic. Yeah. The liver, if you're in recovery, and you've, like me, let's take me, 24 years of drinking, 18 years of doing cocaine, you know, and then I smoked for 24. So my lungs, my liver needed to heal. It didn't need to continue to get, you know, 24 times a day, 48 times a day. Toxins sucked in yeah. that it had to deal with. So there's, it may seem like it's less, um, less dangerous in heroin, but I will tell you this. My lungs still hurt even after seven years of smoking. I feel tingling in the back of my lungs, even though I eat right and I exercise. And I'm really concerned that I'm probably going to die of some lung-related illness. Wow. Because it still hurts. When I was got, first got sober from doing coke, my, my chest, I had chest pain, gone after the first year of working out, eating right, and taking care of myself. My lungs still hurt. So I'm really concerned about that. I just want to share that with people out yeah. there.
0: Maybe. No, I, I think I think that's important, and and I get what you're saying, and I think this is kind of what I was touching on. Like, I think we can agree, like it is the the lesser evil, if you want to rank this stuff. But but yeah, I think it's still something in, important to look at. You know, just uh, you referred to it as as a healthy lifestyle, and I think that's a good good way to uh, you know to kind of present it and and look at it. So. You know, oh, there's
1: one thing, Jonathan. That's really funny. Ozzy Osbourne was interviewed, and he's like, "Ah." Oh, and in one of the interviews he gave, he said, "No, I, I did heroin, but I would never stop smoking. That <laughs> shit <would> kill you." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard so that was, like, yeah. I listened to Ozzy Osbourne. Right? That's pretty good. <laughs> he nailed it. So,
0: so, so yeah. I, I was just gonna say, you know, there there are probably some people that are listening that, um, you know, maybe struggled or feel like it's too hard to start making some some healthy changes in their life? Because look, I I think that, you know, uh, being someone that coaches people in recovery, you know, obviously talks to a lot of people in recovery, whether or not, um, someone is actually making what most of us would, would see as healthier decisions. I would say that most people probably want to, to some degree, you know, And, and they might be struggling with that or seem, you know, uh, Maybe think it's too hard, I guess, but that's not really the case, right? So what are some examples of things that people can start doing to just move in the right direction towards this this healthy lifestyle and sobriety? would you say Well, I mean I
1: have a whole chapter that's there's a detox chapter, and then there's a thirty day plan that's plan. It's the little things. Uh, there's a movie with Bill Murray where he goes, baby steps, baby steps. Uh, he's being he's in therapy and his his therapist is telling him, you're not going to change everything overnight. It's mm. the baby steps. You know, I think for someone who's just getting started, having breakfast in the morning, okay? Breaking the habit if it's a cigarette smoker. Like the first thing I did was I was religiously on my toilet bowl smoking my my cigarette before anything else you know and then so I was trying to quit because it's hard and I started with little things little I used to put my cigarettes downstairs in the mailbox so I didn't have them in my apartment so I couldn't get a cigarette in the morning I couldn't smoke until I actually left you know um so that's another one I mean you know go when you go to Starbucks they have not anymore because you can't go inside but it it, will get back to that or if you're going to a gas station they'll have different sugar options they'll have honey, they'll have good old-fashioned dominoes, refined sugar, they'll have stevia. Stay away from the refined sugar. Just that's huge, huge for your blood sugar, huge for your anxiety, huge. If you can just, instead of when you're getting your your latte um, in the morning, you know, put some natural honey in, or if you're at home, instead of using the the refined sugars as sweeteners, have you know to just have some honey it's going to make a huge difference um, there's so many different types of sweeteners again I have a whole list in the book yeah but also trying to structure eating I mean I don't know anybody who came into active addiction with a healthy eating uh, regimen or relationship with food no way yeah not we, me invent we that yeah. we have to learn how to nourish the body with something other than alcohol, cocaine, heroin, or crystal meth, or whatever, and cigarettes, right? Mm, yeah. Um, that was hard for me, because I would go days at a time. You know, I was so addicted, and I want to say this, that people don't think like, that you know, I wasn't there, and I can't relate. Really. I was so addicted that when I would finish my Coke or whatever, and I had no money, I had, I had a choice. I could buy food or I would go around the apartment and pick up all the pennies, the dimes, and the quarters and put them in a big jar. We, okay, so I have 12 bucks. Should I get food? And 12 bucks was what a cigarette pack cost in New York City at that time. Jeez. I would go buy a cigarette pack and I'd stand there with $12 in change as a cashier and people would be fuming behind me. You know what I'm trying to say? So that, and then I went eat for days. I would just smoke and do drugs. So like, it's important because if you just think about the structure of not only what you're eating, but mm-hmm. when you're eating, like I know now I get, I'm a, I'm middle-aged. I'm 52 years old. I get grumpy, you know, and uh, if I don't eat, <laughs> it gets really worse. It yeah. really impacts my, my mood. There's something being called being hangry. Angry and hungry at the same time as hangry.
0: I've been so, there.
1: You know, you've been there. So it's like I think just kind of saying, okay, I gotta make sure I have breakfast because that's people tell me that's important, and I'm gonna make sure I eat something in the middle of the morning, and then I'm gonna structure my lunch, right? I'm just gonna write down maybe what I'm eating or make sure I have something. Those little changes over time add up exponentially, and I also want to say one thing because I think this is critical for people in recovery um i used to go to a seven o'clock meeting every day for a year and then sometimes i would go to an eight o'clock meeting and the coffee would be out and people would be drinking the coffee and they had cookies and they had sugar and half and half and all that kind of stuff yeah i remember people and myself included. so i was taking a sleeping pill at that time (laughs) i would tell my doctor i can't sleep at night but i never really linked the fact that i was drinking coffee at a seven o'clock meeting and eating cookies and sugar with the fact that i couldn't go to bed i would be up until like two or three in the morning then kind of not off and then you know try to get up early and be miserable so like think about what you're putting in your body at what time of the day yeah and how it's to impact because food and drinks they're they're just like drugs and alcohol in the sense they have chemical components and your body reacts to them. And so just by cutting out drinking, like I have a caffeine cutoff and I write about that in the book. I have a sugar cutoff. And I have a, a my cell phone gets turned off and all electronic devices now at 8 p.m., it used to be 9 p.m. done. And my brain slows down so I can sleep. You know, one of the things I think anybody out there, just give it a try, and it is so hard. I started doing this eight years ago, and I remember turning my phone off. I was like, "No, I can't do that!" Like I felt like so alone. It was a scary thing to shut my phone. Now I can't. I can't imagine not shutting my phone off at eight at 8 p.m. And back in the early days of recovery, when I would turn my phone back on. And I had changed my cell phone, which is what they tell us to do.
2: Yep, I yep. was
1: getting text messages from my partying friends here in New York City like, hey, we're going to be at this bar and we're going to grab some meatballs. Man, you're out of rehab now. You can come in. I was like, "That all that drama didn't happen hmm. because I was shutting the phone off at night.
0: Yeah, no, that's a that's so, a really good habit to get into, and and honestly, it's I've got really be, hard. It's really hard, John, you know. I've got to be better about that, limiting the screen time at, at night. You know, one of the things that you just mentioned that I think is so important, and um, I, I'm a big proponent of. It's one of the main things that I guess I, I, you know, you could say it this way. I try to kind of instill in and in people that I work with, and I think it's just so important for for anyone, but especially people in Uh, addiction or in recovery is that the idea of baby steps and and for someone like I said that you know is maybe uh, struggling with with you know getting some healthy habits going or getting active or eating a little better I think it's important to think of the baby steps um, from from two perspectives it's number one hey something is better than nothing Mm
2: -hmm.
0: something is better than nothing you know so getting out and going for a walk is better than just being completely sedentary, right? And then the other reason that I think baby steps are are so important is because I think, and this is, again, just people in general, but definitely people like me with addictive personalities is, you know, like when I first started getting active, I really liked it. But at the same time, what I saw is like with my nutrition, for instance, okay, I had been eating total crap. Uh, you know, for, for years. Mm -hmm. And, and like, like you said, I had no routine or anything like that, but I had been eating total crap and the way my mind thought is okay. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to be eating chicken breasts. I'm going to be eating broccoli stuff, you know, basically like stuff that, because it has to be a, a awful thing, right? Like eating healthy, which is not true but i didn't take this baby step approach i tried to change everything drastically so not active at all super active not eating great you know eating perfect basically and the thing is is that that's not sustainable for most people right
1: i know you're 100 you're 100 right but we i think that we are all especially when you have an addictive personality we are our own worst enemies and that's why People like you, you train people and, you know, you have clients that you work with. I don't, I'm a lawyer full-time at this point, but um, I created the online spiritual adrenaline community Yeah. because everybody that's part of it is over 80,000 people and our specific thrust, like sober Nations are wonderful. It's huge and there's so much great information, but we focus specifically on exercise and nutrition,
2: right? Yeah, that's awesome.
0: Yeah
1: overactive specific um, community. And that's what makes, I think, that, that, and it's all free. We have over 200 free videos on the YouTube channel. We don't charge for anything on the blog as well. And the reason I bring that up is this. If someone's out there right now watching this, this interview and they live in Pueblo, Colorado, I can introduce them to Rob and Sheena Archuleta. If they're in one of 20 states in the country, in some other parts of the world now, and they're looking to get involved. They can find information on Scott Strode and the Phoenix, yeah. right? Yeah. And to be one of his great yoga teachers in New Jersey, you know, and temperance training down in Florida uh, is doing great work. So uh, Caleb and, and Caitlin McCoy on the Eastern band of Cherokee Nation uh, are doing organizing to help people in the native American community really get at the, the cycle of addiction. There is, yeah. and they're all over the country. Alexi Talbot up in Canada, Uh, Graham McCormick, he's a former mixed martial artist champion, and he's based out of Cork, Ireland, and he now has his own page. So I I get contacted all the time by people, not only from the United States, but all over the world, saying, do you know anybody here? And I do, I know people in the United Kingdom. That was the whole idea behind spiritual adrenaline. So if someone's out there and looking to meet people or an organization that can help them pace themselves, Mm not self um not self-destruct not self-sabotage and also one of the things i talk about in the book is it's important to have i use the term from the 12-step world a sponsor who can show you the way sure because quite frankly this is a sponsor who has succeeded at integration beyond just abstinence from the substance but integration into the lifestyle change Mm. right yeah. And so I'm telling you, what's great about these people, I want to mention too, because it's the only organization in New York they do such great work, is Rock Covery Fitness up in in Rochester, New York. They can go. Anybody watching this can go to our website right now, or they can go to our Facebook page right now. They can look up the contacts for those organizations. They can watch my interviews with the people, and the, I, I don't even I interview the founders. One of the things they always do is they're like, you got to interview this guy. you got to interview her. And I I, I interview their members who completely turn their lives around. And anybody who says, I can't do it, go to our YouTube channel and watch some of my interviews with regular people. I want to mention one because I just did an interview with him for Spiritual Age Scott Richardson was almost, uh, he was 450 pounds
2: or thereabouts. Wow. Yeah,
1: it goes back years and years and years. He could barely walk. He was an active alcoholic in addition to being huge. He was. He wound up getting sober. He then was diagnosed by cancer. It's a long, you've got to watch this interview. And so he overcame cancer. He, he stayed sober through that. He now helps tra- train Team USA triathletes. I mean, it's wow. amazing. And he just got certified by NASM. And when you I had his before and after photo, like when you hear that other people have done it and they start with those little baby steps, it reinforces that they can do it. And then one other thing about the book that I think will be helpful for people who are maybe self-doubters, again, evidence-based. I looked at almost all the major research that's been done on exercise benefits for people in addiction recovery yeah. and all the chapter on recovery and exercise and what the research shows i actually break out the amount of time by activity okay. and what amount of time and how many days a week shows the most benefits for people in recovery oh, wow. based on the scientific research so if you like um, if you like uh, kickboxing you can do that basketball running swimming you know everyone has different interests but they can start to see what the recommendations are. But the really underlying import of all of those studies, and this goes to something that you raised, this is so important for someone just getting started, even five minutes a day of walking outside in the fresh air, preferably in a park where there's green trees and a lawn, has major impact for people in dealing with anxiety, depression, which are two of the major um, common illnesses or conditions that are found in people in recovery, and wow. so the research is clear. You don't have to run a marathon. You know, every I, I I was like when I tell me tell me if you did this because we're we have a lot in common. I was like, I'm gonna become a couple and then I'm gonna do the Ironman. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. I never did either of those things yeah. because someone pulled reined me in and said, "Chill out." No, yeah. Man. Oh, yeah.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, I I think that, you know, for for me, um, and and I think a lot of people do this, like you're talking about walking, like today, I I love walking. Like, I mean, I think, and I think that a lot of people, maybe someone trying to get in shape, especially is like walking, like, you know, what's that going to do? Like people don't understand, like bodybuilders walk a lot, you know, like there's so many benefit, mental and physical benefits to, some, but yeah, like I got into um, you know jogging initially, and like I kind of found out like I'm not a big jogger, like I could go for a jog occasionally, but it's just not really you know yeah. not really my my thing, you know, and I think you're you're leading up to this and and you've kind of touched on it, uh, kind of grazed it, so to speak. Um, I know and and you've just said it as well, but I know how much. Um, you know, fitness and nutrition have have benefited my recovery and continue to. Do you think, and, and does the research point to at all, because I think this is what most people really care about. Like they might not care about being healthy, but they probably, you know, or the idea of being healthy, but they probably care about this. Do you think that, that paying attention to your, your fitness and your nutrition has an impact on whether or not someone relapses?
1: I mean, uh, my opinion is different from what the research sure. is. Yeah, but sure. Let, let me just take it first by, again, in, in the chapter where I deal with the 12-step community, mm-hmm. I looked at AA's own statistics. These are not made up by me. It's okay. not uh, some critic of uh, AA, but I asked for their internal statistics and I was able to obtain them. Okay. Um the uh, success rates over periods of time. Okay, so after a five-year period, um, 10% of the people who were surveyed had remained, that's what their statistics show. Yeah. After 10 years, 1% success rate. That's AA's own statistics, and they're in. So, that being said, we look at uh, the. There's only one organization. For, well, let me let me take it a step back. So we have AA statistics, which are not in dispute. Anyone can get them out of my book, or they can email me, or email AA if they'll give them to them. The secondary issue becomes: Can we prove that relapse rates are lower for people who um, integrate exercise and nutrition? So I. I'm contacted all the time by graduate students asking to see my research because I spent so much time researching the book. Okay. There's only programs that have statistics relating to this topic. And that's uh, Scott Strode at the Phoenix, and that's Rob and Sheena Archuleta at Addict to Athlete.
2: Okay. Uh,
1: Bob, he kept a, um, a random assessment, um, it's, it's not scientifically based, and he doesn't. Be- he doesn't, uh, you know, claim it to be. But they did a survey of people who had come into the program over a specific period of time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Their relapse rates based upon that that particular time where they surveyed what they call their users are much lower than the statistics I cited earlier for AA. But here's the real kicker, and this, one, this is what gets Scott so excited when we speak about it, is that the real... The return to the Phoenix program, which it's a it's a workout program, it's a CrossFit program, it's an active, it's not institutional for those people who don't know what the Phoenix is, right? Right, right. But the the rate of people coming back into the program after relapse is very high. Hmm. And when I asked Scott, I interviewed him for my book why he thought that was so, it's because it's such a nurturing, non-judgmental community. That revolves around CrossFit. It revolves around surfing. It revolves around hiking. It revolves around these kinds of activities. Like, it's not a meeting where you have to go sit in a room with people. Like, I, you know, one day back, that kind of a thing. Right, it's just right. sometimes better than the other. What I'm suggesting to you is, it's more of a community where people feel comfortable, kind of coming back. That's what his statistics show. The only organization in the world right now that actually has Uh, They received a grant to have an outside um, auditor come in over, I think it was a two-year period, and track the success rates of participants is addict to athlete in Pueblo, Colorado. The reason they they were able to get the grant is they have um, contracts with local court systems uh, where people are sent when they're on probation and other programs. Uh, Rob will kill me if, and she know if I misspeak. So there's a number of different programs they have with the court system. So the courts wanted to analyze whether or not people who are in the criminal justice system, because of some lifestyle where they were, they admitted they had problems with drugs. Right. What were the ratios of success with recidivism, which means you know committing another crime? Yeah. Reoffending. Filing right. parole. Right, so they measured all these things. And I just did a presentation with Sheena Archuleta where we actually, and I have the presentation if there's anybody out there in the treatment community would like to see the numbers. In addition to looking at recidivism rates and long-term recovery rates, they also looked at the ability of the participants when they first came in to the program. We talked about baby steps. Yeah, These are not people who could jog around the block. These are people who, most of whom, in their entire life and not worked out, could have a difficulty with one sit-up, one push-up. Sure. But they actually measured that criteria as well as the larger picture. Wow. Their relapse rates were substantially lower for people who participated in the addict-to-athlete program than they were for those in that same population who didn't get uh, participate in, in the program. Wow. Now, was their relapse rate lower right? But their fitness rate, what they were able to do from the day they walked in the door, I get emotional now talking about this is beautiful. This is someone's life, right? So what they could do when they walked in the door to when they finished the program was exponentially different. And I don't want them to misspeak because I think the facts are important. Sure, but sure. But people want to come up, one, sit up to 40 sales, right. like that's a big difference, but they felt better in their lifestyle. Yeah. So um, you know, again, Addict to Athlete has all those statistics. It's the only program in the world that I'm aware of uh, that actually has proven that when you integrate lifestyle modification to overall addiction recovery, you get a better result. And one more thing that I wanna to speak to on the Addict to Athlete program they have a weekly curriculum that's been developed by the Archuleta's, and now they have coaches who started out as participants in that program who okay. it, and they talk about uh, the different lifestyle components that we're talking about. Yeah, and food, <laughs> What's, You know, why is it important? You know, sleep, like, and, and basic relearning basic life skills, and so I think that's really of critical import. And I again. I'm an advocate for the sober active community. I'm an advocate for addict to athlete. I'm an advocate for the Phoenix for recovery, fitness, temperance training, uh, Caleb, you know, um, down in North Carolina, uh, Alexi Graham. I mean, I talk about these great people, The Detroit recovery project. There's a new one in, in Phoenix and just the barbell saves great new program that just got started up in Phoenix. So I'm an advocate for these programs because if it worked for me. It's worked for thousands of thousands of other people. It's worked for all the founders and the members. Not not everybody, but many of them had failed staying sober before they did this for themselves. And we have 80,000 members of our Facebook community, okay? Wow. And I think the reason we do is because this is the missing link.
2: Hmm.
1: I, I say to myself all the time, and I know you do, Jonathan. I know you do. Like, Why? Why? Is this not taught? Why do we not just give give people an inpatient just that little taste, you know sure. of why it works and in more facilities and do? I actually got exposed to it. I got the award for Most Improved Swimmer at Conifer Park in, in New York. Um, I'm still friends with the uh, recreation therapist, Abby, who is there, uh, we've we do we've actually I've gone up to speak a bunch of times and she pushed me to not just sit at the table and sulk, but get in the pool and swim again. And so I started with like one lap or two laps and I was doing like 40 to 50, I can't remember by the time I was discharged, so it wow. works. You know, I just, anyone out there, just give it a, listen, if, it, if you don't like it, if it doesn't work for you, you can stop. You have nothing to lose, sure. and made like a whole life to gain. No. I give it a
0: try. Yeah, that that's a great point. Yeah, and I think, and you said it. Look, like everyone's different, and I, I think, and I appreciate you being honest. Like I, I think that uh, one thing we're kind of discovering here, and, and you discovered long ago, is that more research and and study needs to be done here. Um, you know, and but it sounds like there's definitely some promising evidence that's that's come out about you know how all of this affects you know someone's ability to uh, stay sober and stay in recovery in the long term but i think you know the simple question that that i ask myself and i think that people should consider is hey don't i want to do everything possible to to help benefit my recovery and and I think that what I really started to see on top of that is, is that not only did this benefit my my recovery um, and my ability to stay sober, it really helped me because, you know, I was noticing things like, um, man, like, you know, I like to lift. And and so between sets, I was almost meditating a little bit and and I was having little wins in the gym, which was boosting my confidence. And that helped me in my career. And if your career is good, then you're probably not going to be stressed out and, and want to go get higher drinks. So all these things, and, and you pointed this out earlier, everything works together. It, it all works together. And I'm with you, man. I mean, I really do think that this is one of the missing, uh, one of the missing links. And I appreciate you just touching on, you know, the history and, and 12 step programs about all of this and and how many people around the country uh, including yourself are involved in in really this uh, active sober movement because it's it's just so so incredible. So before we wrap up, Tom, I, I want to ask you what is one piece of advice that you would like to share with the sober nation?
1: I, I just think um, the the biggest mistake is to not believe in your capacity to change, and to have your body heal. One of the focuses in the book is that the body will heal if you give it, and the mind as well, the nutrients it needs to succeed and to undo the damage from years of active addiction. I follow the 12-step path. That's a great medicine for the mind, but it's not a medicine for the body, right? So if you you use the 12-steps or whatever, whatever recovery program works for you, psychologically, go for it. But try integrating something for the body to accompany it. And I think you're going to see that your success and your happiness is exponentially more because you're taking care of the physical body that holds your brain and enables you to think differently and to think more positively. And it all starts with those little baby steps that we talked about earlier.
0: Wow, that's man, that's awesome advice. And yeah, I think that you and I are are certainly on the same page. I'm with you a hundred percent. And and we could say it a bunch of different ways, but you know, body, mind, spirit. I'm I'm someone that's a big believer that it all works together. And um, you know, doing something to pay attention to our our physical body as part of our sobriety and and recovery, I think, is super important. So that's great advice. Uh, you can learn more about Tom and Spiritual Adrenaline by visiting spiritualadrenaline.com and, of course, their Facebook page where you can find out more about their uh, online community. Thanks again for coming on today, Tom.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, really great to see you again, Jonathan. I wish everybody out there in Server Nation all the best and all the success in their life and their recovery.
0: Be sure to check out the show notes for all the info from today's episode. Sober Nation FM is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Sobriety Engine is a free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. This show is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle while supporting your sobriety, you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And again, whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. Nation, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.